All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And you can uh, check in to uh, subscribe to both those letters by going to miningstocks.com. That's miningstocks.com, or call my assistant, Claudio Bassi, in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. can also follow everything I do by going to jtaylormedia, that's J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R-Media.com, and you can follow me on Twitter under the handle jtaylormedia. Do want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Blue Goldwaters Technologies, Prophecy Platinum, Balmoral Resources, Golden Arrow Resources, and SGX Resources. Um, we do have uh, a really tight schedule today uh, coming up, so I'm going to jump right into today's show. I also want to encourage you, though, to continue to sending, send your questions and comments along to questions for Taylor. That's questions, the number for Taylor at gmail.com. Uh, later at the end of the day's show, if I have the time, I want to comment on something, a question someone had uh, on a uh, on a company that I followed, Dynacore, uh, has been a sponsor, I've talked about it, one of my favorites. Uh, I am not worried about Dynacore. I'm extremely bullish, but I'll talk more about it in the last segment if there's time today. I want to thank Jeremy from North Carolina who wrote uh, a very interesting question as well as Bob from Illinois. Uh, keep those questions coming, and again, I will address those in the last segment of today's show, time permitting. Well, let's get into today's show. Today's guests are Ellen Brown, Florian Siegfried, Dale Ginn, and Darren Wagner. Making the world safe for democracy, that's what I've... Uh, titled today's show. Well, that was the, uh, well, actually, I, I said making the world safe for derivatives. But de- making the world safe for democracy, that was the slogan that was used to get the American people behind World War I. But now, even a former President Jimmy Carter has said that the United States is no longer a functioning democracy. I'm wondering what in the world we're looking to go to war for now. Not even in the United States do we have a democracy, according to the former President Jimmy Carter, who said that and was quoted in Der Spiegel. No, you haven't heard our major media say anything like that. They will not tell you that a former president says we don't have a democracy in America. So why are we going to war in Syria? Why are we itching to get into another war in Syria? Well, Ellen Brown uh, is coming back this week to explain the obvious to those of us who dare think outside of the propaganda box that the mainstream programs us to get inside every day. Our wars now are to make the world safe for derivatives and other 
tricks pulled by Wall Street to separate you and the world's population from their wallets. Our other three guests uh, today, after Ellen, uh, or besides Ellen, I should say, uh, will try to help us find ways to keep Washington and Wall Street from sending all of us to the poorhouse. That seems to be where they're, where they're trying to send us. That's, that's the way I read it anyway. Uh, recognizing what is really happening, really happening, not what you're told is happening in the mainstream media, and the reasons for our government's foreign and domestic policies, I think is extremely necessary in planning for your future. Uh, but then we also have to be able to take that theoretical or that that knowledge of what is actually going on, the political, geopolitical stuff, and apply it to our daily lives. When you know something is going terribly wrong, I think, uh, in the current global monetary system, as I believe is the case, then the smartest thing to do is to try best you can to get outside of that system. And still the best way I know to opt out of the uh, uh, out of our system is to trade what is clearly fraudulent paper money called the dollar. Uh, it's backed by nothing more than our military force. Uh, and, and then trade it for something that has been a non-political money, a market-driven money for thousands of years, namely gold and silver. Of course, that has been a theme of this show since its inception back in March of 2009 until the current global malaise is settled or until uh, government forcibly confiscates gold and silver from us, as they did in the 1930s. Uh, I really clearly don't see any other way of, of trying to opt out of the system other than buying gold and silver in one form or another. Um, but in addition to uh, owning gold and silver, I think it's very also very strongly advisable to diversify the way that you own those uh, those metals. Uh, under uh, under Roosevelt, of course, gold and silver was con- well, gold was confiscated, uh, and there's a chance that that could happen again. I, I really think that could very well be a problem. But realize that during the 1930s, uh, we uh, you know we um, you could own gold in the form of equities, that is, owning shares of gold mining stocks. In fact, the gold mining stocks did extremely well during the 1930s when the uh, Dow lost 90% of its value. Uh, home stake went up six or seven fold. There was a boom in gold mining then. I think there will be, there has been, and will continue. The next leg up into the bull market is going to be, I think, going to make some people very wealthy. Uh, but wealth is really the least of our concerns now. I think we want to try to hang on to what we've got against an assault against the middle class and average people. Well, to help us navigate uh, a way to invest in gold mining shares, at 4 o'clock today, Florian Siegfried, who's a Swiss-based gold-orientated hedge fund, was one of the, one of the few funds that actually gained money in 2012. He'll be by uh, to tell us of some of his stock picks and what his thinking is in the gold mining industry. And then we're going to have CEOs of two very exciting young exploration companies that are doing extremely well. Uh, as soon as we go to the break in just one minute, Dale Ginn of SGX Resources is going to be with me. Uh, and then uh, later in the day at about 4.30, Darren Wagner. Wagner of Balmoral Resources will be with me. Well, you know, SGX, I, I can tell you, is a company that I am extremely high on. In fact, I'm writing a piece for my newsletter this weekend. I think it, is the, it has a chance of being a 10-bagger from the point that we picked it up. Uh, and, uh, well, stick around to listen to what Dale Ginn has to say as soon as we come back from the break. Don't go away. I'll be right back with Dale Ginn. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. 
In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper property. A large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. Some things never go out of style. In the gold business for over 100 years, high-grade Canadian gold discoveries have been in vogue amongst investors. Balmoral Resources has continued to deliver high-grade results from a series of new discoveries in Quebec. If you're looking to upgrade your portfolio in the fall with some golden highlights, learn more about Balmoral at balmoralresources.com. Balmoral trades on the OTCQX under the symbol B-A-L-M-F and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol B-A-R. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me again Dale Ginn. Many of you may know Dale uh, as, the, as an executive at Sandgold, uh, for which he still serves as executive vice chairman. But he is also currently president and CEO of SGX Resources, uh, and he is a co-founder uh, as well of that. Uh, he's a founder of that company and a co-founder, actually, of, of Sandgold as well. Uh, previously, uh, Dale worked uh, at Hudson Bay Mining and, and Smelting, Gold Corp, Grangus, Westman, and was general manager of Harmony Gold before initiating the startup uh, operations at Sand Gold at the Rice Lake Project. As a geologist, Dale has uh, over 25 years of experience handling duties as a geologist, uh, as a mines management guy, and also as an executive with those uh, companies that I just named. Uh, Dale um, is, uh, as I say, has been has been around this business for a long time, and uh, somebody I've learned to know very well. Um, and so it's really good to have you, Dale. It's good to have you back again. Yeah, th- thanks for having me again, Jay. Really good. Uh, I should tell our listeners, SGX Resources trades uh, in Toronto under the symbol uh, XS uh, SXR. Um, and it's got a, about 127 million shares outstanding, selling at 10 cents a share uh, for a market cap of under 13 million dollars. Um, you know, you've been really reporting some very, very nice, very impressive gold assays from your uh, Tully Gold deposit in Ontario, um, and that is a joint venture with Sand Gold. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with Sand Gold? There, what? What is the joint venture agreement on the Tully deposit? Sure, it's it's basically a simple joint venture ownership whereby Sandgold contributes equally, um, you know, to us in terms of the dollars spent on the property. And um, as SGX, we act as the operator, so we um, 
you know, we run the exploration mm-hmm. program and the drilling program, of course, with with Sangold completely in the loop and uh, contributing where where and when they can. So okay. it's, it's a basic joint venture agreement. So is it, it's a 50-50 deal? 50-50, and really um, it was the first property that we purchased in Timmins as Sangold, and, and it was such a quite, you know, had such potential that Sangold opted to keep 50% of it mm-hmm. at the time when we formed SGX. Mm-hmm. And uh, so at this time it works out quite well because all of our expenditures uh, are being shared with, you know, with a larger company in Sangold. Right. Well, it certainly is helpful these days when it's very difficult for uh, for junior mining companies to raise capital, that's for sure. Um, several months ago, you know, a, a geologist who's very familiar with this project uh, told me that he thought that it had the prospects of coming up with uh, something on the order of a million ounces or so grading. He, he thought somewhere around maybe six, seven, eight grams, somewhere in that range. Um, now, that's, that was a little while ago, but there's been some good drill results since then. How, uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Does this project have a potential to, I mean, because those are pretty high numbers. It's a, it's a near-surface deposit, I believe, underground target, though, isn't it, Dale? Uh, and, and so what are, the tar, what, what are the prospects of coming up with something like on the order of a million ounces or so of high-grade material? Well, it's quite likely um, that, that we'll be able to get into that range given that it's, um, as you said, a near-surface high-grade, so in the 7-ish gram range deposit. Mm-hmm. And previously it only had, you know, been drilled down, oh, say six or 700 feet deep. And our last press release has got us down um, over 2,000 feet deep. Oh. And we, where we hit good widths, and very nice grades, so in the order of six, uh, 20, over 20 feet of uh, uh, around eight, 8 grams per ton, so quarter ounce per ton. So good grades and good widths, and we've more than doubled the known depth of the deposit at this time. As well, we've extended it along strike. So we're certainly getting uh, a much bigger volume uh, you know, than we had before. So, you, so you were in mineralization at that depth yet, Dale? Um, better than mineralization. We 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 got, uh, as I said, a good width of over twenty feet mm-hmm. and um, good grades of uh, around eight grams per ton, which is about a quarter ounce per ton. So, so uh, in yeah. all aspects, yeah, it's been great. Yeah, but did I hear you to say two thousand? You've you've drilled two thousand feet in depth. Yeah, that's correct. Oh, yeah. okay. And what is the um, what is the dimensions of your drilling so far uh, along strike? So far, it's uh, now up over seven hundred meters or over two thousand feet long, mm-hmm. and we are currently stepping out quite a long ways, over a thousand feet to the west. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're encouraged with what we see. We're just waiting for some numbers and hope to have uh, some news out about that large step out uh, fairly shortly. Wow. We could be expecting some numbers very soon then, within the next couple of weeks possibly? That's correct, yeah. Um, you know, I'd like to remind my listeners and my subscribers that not all ounces are, 
are equal. Well, not all gold ounces are equal. I mean, you can have gold ounces up in the Arctic Circle, and there's no infrastructure. You can have gold ounces where you have them. Tell our listeners where you're located and what is the infrastructure situation like uh, where SGX's Tully deposit is located. Sure. Uh, really, it's very close to a major mining center in Timmins, Ontario. So we're we're about uh, 25 kilometers straight north of Timmins. We're very close to rail. Road, uh, we have full road access. And we're just to the east of the large Kid Creek uh, copper mine. So we're very, very close, um, you know, to the town itself and to the large uh, mining centers around us. And uh, we're even close to a couple of gold mills that are within very short drive, driving distances if, you know, if that were the route that we, we would chose, choose going forward. What would, uh, what would come into your thinking there? Let's suppose that you're able to outline that sort of million-ounce, seven-gram deposit. Um, I mean, there must be, there would be, I suppose, some threshold, some economic threshold that would make it advisable for you to build your own mill or or not. And what, I guess, there, I guess you just have to go through the, through the, through the math once you have enough knowledge about the project to be able to, to make that calculation, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, each project has its own, you know, economic considerations when it comes to how much infrastructure and, you know, you're going to build and what, and what exists around you. But in our case, uh, you know, all the, everything is working for us in terms of, um, you know, being close to uh, infrastructure, power, roads, rail. Um, it's a friendly, you know, mining-friendly area. Uh, there's been over 60 million ounces of gold produced in the Timmins area since the early 1900s. So, you know, tenure is uh, the best in the world, you know, in terms of northern Northwestern Ontario, or sorry, Northern Ontario, Canada. So, our thinking is, um, you know, we have the opportunity, to possibly to to use other other companies' mills, or we we you know, if this deposit gets big enough, we we certainly could build our own, and we're no stranger to that. Yeah. And we are looking in into all of those uh, possibilities. Yeah, the point is it's better to have that option than not to have it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and then all the infrastructure, the access, the water, the power, all that stuff, uh, you guys, uh, it's pretty readily available where you're at, right? So, it, It's all there, and, you know, as I, I keep saying in my press releases, uh, it's very rare to have a, a high-grade near-surface new deposit uh, within reach of, of good infrastructure and in a safe place, so... You know, you know, I keep trying to stress that we have yeah. something that's very rare and of, I think, a lot of value here. Well, indeed, uh, but you will be underground mining and but near surface. So, but you know, it's uh, the emphasis now. More recently, I believe Dale has been for the mining companies to look for the higher grade deposits as well, because a lot of a lot of companies have found it uh, tough going for those sub one gram surface deposits these days. So. Uh, it seems to be uh, that that you're at the right place now with this Tully discovery. Uh, you, so you're talking about 2,000 feet so far. You've drilled, but now but now you've stepped out another thousand. Yeah, yeah that's correct. Uh, as far yeah. as the the length of the deposit, yeah. we've 
we've uh, established a, around 2,000 feet long so far, uh-huh. and we are stepping out as much as 1,000 feet away from the deposit now. And, and um, what, what we've done is identify the, the host horizon. It's a, it's a tuff, a volcanic rock unit uh-huh. that con- that's favorably uh, inclined to contain these gold-bearing veins. And um, we've identified it through the use of our geophysics. And we've honed in on it with, uh, with a few sort of scoping um, drill holes. And now mm-hmm. we're able to pinpoint it and, uh, you know, with, with, uh, with, <laughs> with uh, some good geology and, and, some, and a bit of luck, we'll, we'll find um, gold-bearing veins within that tuff. Yeah, so I, 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 can you give our listeners some sense of, of the strike length of this, uh, of this host horizon? The horizon itself? Yeah. It, it, it runs um, for 5 to 10 kilometers east-west. Oh. Wow. And, you know, we've identified that. It's got a few, uh, you know, very slight folds in it, and that's kind of the key is where we hone in on where these these folds occur mm-hmm. and that's um, those are the places where the unit would have dilated or opened mm-hmm. up and allowed for for fluids to come mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. and you can identify those with, with geophysics I suppose and various tools yeah the, the reason this deposit has not been discovered or or even extracted at all uh, for the last hundred years is that it is covered with uh, a swampy, gravelly overburden, and this whole area is actually um, covered by this, and and it's masked. We don't know. I, I assume that it's masked uh, other deposits that are yet to be discovered. Mm-hmm. But you know, in the Timmins area, most things that had outcropped on surface have been prospected and or sure, you know, or worked in one way or another. And sure. So we've focused on areas on the major fault trends, on the mining trends that are buried by overburden, and we've had great success uh, doing that. Dale, I understand the geometry or the, uh, the, the way this deposit is laid out. You, you've described it, I think, in one of your press releases as sort of a, a Venetian blind formation. Could you explain to our listeners it's like stacked on top of each other, these deposits? Is that the way it is? Right. It's, it was always assumed that most of the deposits here are steep mm-hmm. because the the um, orientation of most you know most of the rock types are are steeply dipping and overturned mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. and but when you look back at what's been mined in Timmins, a great percentage of uh, of and and some of the best grade ore bodies were in the flat parts of the mm-hmm. ore bodies mm-hmm. and so what we did is we we kind of reinterpreted the what data did exist on this deposit, and we interpret it now as a uh, flat, a stack of flat-lying veins. Mm. But when you stack them together, they they actually like together they form large, uh, you know, uh, voids that that are relatively vertical. So they make for for good mining geometries. Mm-hmm. But the the individual veins themselves are are flat-lying. Mm. And they, they pinch and swell, so they open and close, much like, you know, if you envision a Venetian blind, you know, when you pull the cord, the um, yeah. 
the, the blinds open, right. and they pinch at a point, right? Right. So if you take that, kind of, you know, turn it a little bit on end so that it's plunging, that's basically what, what we're dealing with is a series of these uh, pinches and swells in the, uh, in the unit, and that, that's allowed for these flat-lying veins to form. Mm-hmm. I know, Dale, the, the market's been very, very uh, depressed, uh, to say the least, over the last couple of years. In fact, I think you've got to go back a long ways to find it more so than, than what we've experienced. Uh, and so I suppose that it's not the best time to ask this question, but, um, you know, a deposit that's developed, that's gone through feasibility, a lot of the risk has been taken out of it, what kind of valuations might the market pay, and again, it would make a big difference if whether you're in a bull market or a bear market, but uh, I mean, what could investors, because we're always trying to figure out ahead of time, what could this deposit be worth? Let's say you come up with that million ounces of seven grams or whatever, and the, it's relatively easy to get to, the mining costs should be relatively low. You know, what What might, uh, and there's no metallurgical issues here as far as I'm, I know, are there? With this deposit? No, no, it's very clean um, quartz carbonate veining with pyrite and visible mm-hmm. gold. So it's very, very clean. Would be a clean milling type. Would be of easy. Yeah. So I mean, all those all those factors come into play in terms of what a market or what a uh, some other company might be willing to pay if you don't go it alone. But I mean, what could in an advanced stage through feasibility or up up to feasibility? That's you might expect fifty bucks an ounce or a hundred bucks an ounce. Or I mean, it's hard to say, I guess. Very, very hard to say. All, all I could say is it's many multiples of what we are now. It's just that, yeah, we are. We're moving ahead. We're, we're proving what was, you know, an unknown deposit, and and we're making it, you know, from our own experience. We know that we're getting it into the volumes and sizes that are going to attract attention. But sure. we have to do, we have to do the work to do that. And yeah. I mean, I've been, I've seen all kinds of valuations being paid for undeveloped deposits. So yeah. I really wouldn't. It's hard to say. And it's such a, and it's such a, such uh, a. I mean, if we have a uh, move back to the old highs in gold, which I expect we will have in due course, from fourteen hundred today to nineteen hundred then, you know, or, or two thousand, that would make all the difference in the world. Obviously, so it's 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 I guess a. But it's something that people should keep in mind and uh, look at the number of ounces. And when do you expect to, to give us some ounces uh, uh, in terms of uh, a resource, a 43101 resource, Dale? Well, we're, we're preparing. We think we have enough data now to start one. And our, mm-hmm. internally, we're already sort of preparing the data for it. And uh, we're lining up the, uh, the outside consultant to, um, to begin work. So I, I expect we'll have a... Uh, its first real 43101 resource uh, estimate by year's end. Um, well, that's that's something to look forward to then. Uh, certainly, and and ongoing drill results will be coming out before then, I guess. Right? You'll be reporting more drill results, as you said, within possibly within a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's correct. The program, you know, continues, and uh, right now there's emphasis on stretching out the length and stepping out beyond the uh, known limits of the deposit. And mm-hmm. So with any success there, um, you know, I think this program is just going to build, uh, you know, to instead of a single drill turning on it, to multiple drills by uh, sort of in the last part of the year. 
doesn't seem to me that the market is paying much attention to you, though, at this point with 10 cents a share. So, I mean, I'm looking at it very from a very, you know, as, as a great opportunity. Uh, I just uh, I want to get the stock, see it trade down here in the States. It's a little easier to buy it for those of us down here. And uh, I, I'm sure it will be very shortly. It trades in Canada now um, on the Toronto Exchange. Um, how much do you expect to spend, Dale, over the next year or so? Do you, do you have a budget? What is the budget calling for at the present time? Well, it, I mean, we've always run kind of success-based, mm-hmm. and the budgets are adjust, you know, adjusted um, pretty fluidly, or fluidly from property to property. Uh, we're, uh, you know, we're looking at having one, between one and three drills turning on this property at any given time, and, mm-hmm. and so that's that's about a about a, a six million dollar a year uh, budget, you know, which, for a full year. Which you split with Sandgold at this point. Which we split. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Now you do have a couple of other. You have some other things going on in Ontario too, uh, close by Dale, and then maybe if you last minute or two of time okay. we have, you can just talk about some of your other endeavors in Ontario. Sure. Just. Um, 60 kilometers to the south of Timmins, so this is now on the projection of the Kirkland Larder break. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have what's called the Edelston Zone, mm-hmm. and we found this less than two years right from scratch, no hint of it at all mm. before, and uh, this again was covered in overburden, and we have a what looks to be a large um, sort of wide lowish grade deposit, so, mm-hmm. and but within it, though, we're, you know, our latest, our last drilling uh, had given us um, some hints of some very high grades as well. And so we're really in the process now of, of catching up some of the backlog of drilling that we had done and, and reinterpreting this deposit because we're, we're really trying to figure out now if this is really a broad, you know, again, at surface, Mm-hmm. lowish grade deposit or if mm-hmm. it's a series of higher grade deposits mm-hmm. and and or a combination of both and so that's so so that thing is new it's wide open to depth a long strike it's got great great geology we've uh, put together a very very interesting geological model for it is that 100 I, is that 100 percent owned by sgx that's 100 percent owned by sgx uh-huh and it lies uh, on a map that would lie directly in between the Cote Lake deposit, so that's owned by I Am Gold, that's mm-hmm. to the west of us, mm-hmm. and the Young Davidson Mine, which, which is owned and being operated now by Orico, so that's uh, directly to the east of us, and, mm-hmm. and so we just lie directly in between, in between. those two deposits. Yeah. Along the same major structure, perhaps? That's correct, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And... Also, we have right in the heart of Timmins, um, it's called, we have 32% of the uh, Davidson-Tisdale deposit. Mm-hmm. Our joint venture partner there is Lexham VG Gold, and of course that's uh, Rob, Mc, Rob McEwen is uh, chairman of that company. Uh-huh. And, and that's a, a high, high-ish grade deposit um, near surface. It's got a, a decline, a ramp access that was put into it about... Uh, ten or so years ago, and so it's another one of these deposits that needs a bit more work to understand it better. But certainly, a lot of potential, good high grades, and and again near surface. 
Are you needing to put your 32% uh, funding there for on that, Dale? We keep up the funding, uh-huh. uh, that 32% funding, in order to keep our position up in that one. And But at the moment, there's really just sort of resource and PEA work going I on. I see. So, so not a lot of dollars. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's uh, certainly, you know, with a, a market cap of under $13 million, the prospects, very good prospects, if not even a high probability of coming up with something on the order of a million high-grade ounces. And I'm, I'm thinking that there could be some blue sky beyond that, given the dimensions of the host rock you're talking about. But, I mean, that's, that's all speculation on my part, of course. And uh, I just think it's really worth, uh, you have had a history of, of successful exploration, Dale, and you've got the team, it seems to me, uh, to to take this a long ways yourself. You know, a lot of the companies I follow are they're saying, well, you know, we don't have the skill sets to be producers. We, you know, we are exploration people. We're going to hand it off to someone else. But if you have the skill sets in place to be able to take it further, that gives you some leverage, doesn't it? I think so. I mean, uh, yeah, our, our our exploration team, part of it is the same team that uh, discovered in 2008 and 2009, the uh, the Hinge and the 007 mm-hmm. and other deposits for sand gold. And, and uh, you talked about, you know, my past experience, and they're all with very, very uh, prominent and yeah. good explorers and producers. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we, we, have, uh, we have a pretty good list of discoveries, you know, and most of them are of the high-grade sort of, you know, underground nature, and that, mm-hmm. that's really our specialty, and, and we tend to stick with that, and, and I do believe, as you said, the market, you know, is is turning to those because the capital requirements just, you know, aren't uh, as massive as those larger, uh, you yeah. know, lower-grade deposits, yeah, and there's a sure. lot more room to, you know, to have hiccups here and there. Yeah, there's a lot more. <laughs> if you're if you're if you're moving a small amount of high grade rock, you can have a, a you know a lot more volatility than the gold price and still make money than you can if you're if you're fooling around with something you know sub one gram, I suppose. But uh, uh, this is I think this is a really exciting story. It is in my newsletter. I don't own it personally yet, and the only reason I don't is because I haven't been able to buy it through my through my Waterhouse uh, my my TD uh, account. But I think they'll be trading pretty soon down here, and uh, I'm looking forward to picking up some of these shares as I have uh, the sister company, Sandgold, which uh, I'm also very pleased to see seems to be turning things around, Dale. Is there anything else you'd like to say about SGX today? Just, uh, you know, I just keep trying to emphasize that it is, you know, these are quality deposits, and they're near surface. They're Mm -hmm. in very, very uh, mining-friendly jurisdictions, and uh, we are... Very confident that we're going to add to them and find some more. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an exciting story. I want to thank you very much, Dale, for coming along and, and uh, talking to our listeners. Uh, and, of course, I'm going to be uh, doing an update in my newsletter probably this weekend if I can find the time to get it done between now and, and the rest of the day. So thank you very much, Dale. been a pleasure talking to you, and I hope we can do it again sometime soon. Oh, for sure. Thanks. Thanks again, G. Thank you. Yeah. Well, folks, don't go away. We'll be right back with Ellen Brown, who will talk about the war that our bankers want to get us into, this time in Syria. Ellen says we are, being, we, we are going to war uh, to make the world safe for derivatives. You know, World War I was safe for democracy. Ellen says, don't kid yourself, this is a war about making 
the banking world safe for derivatives? Well, we'll hear what she has to say about her very interesting geopolitical insights. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Ellen Brown. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. SGX Resources is an exploration gold company with multiple advanced exploration projects in the Timmins Gold Camp. Recent high-grade intersections at SGX's Tully Deposit include 14 meters at 20.1 grams per ton and 17.6 meters at 11.1 grams per ton. The deposit is currently more than 600 meters along strike with a depth of up to 250 meters and remains open in all directions. SGX Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange with the trading symbol SXR. Visit our website at www.sgxresources.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me again Ellen Brown. Uh, well, she's the author of several books, but the one that, uh, that I first became familiar with and I think is probably the most important uh, starter book to read that Ellen has written, and that's called Web of Debt. And I would advise you, if you've got a pen, or, a pen and paper handy, to take down the website that you need to go to to follow all that Ellen does. She writes... Uh, she's a prolific writer. She writes about very important topics, uh, webofdebt.wordpress.com. Webofdebt.wordpress.com uh, is a place to go to to catch up with, with all that she does. And, and um, one of the things I would really, well, just to give you an idea of some of the things that are on that web, uh, on her website, she has something called the Truth Digger of the Week, which I would advise you to go to. Uh, the one that I saw, the, the most recent posting there under the Truth Digger of the Week, has a very excellent video explaining why your money is not safe in this banking system. And I think this is very important. It's a very important film uh, that I would urge you to view and then make sure that those you love also see it because it's very important to understand uh, that our banking system is in a heap of trouble no matter what the mainstream media might tell you. Um, you know, we had Ellen on last week to explain why Elliot Spitzer is Wall Street's biggest nightmare. And today, Elliot Spitzer is, uh, uh, there's an election here in New York. 
a primary election, and um, well, I don't know. There's sort of a toss-up as to whether he's going to win or not. But Ellen made a very good case uh, for why this man is probably the one that should be elected. Uh, in fact, I tried to vote today, but wasn't able to because for some reason they didn't have my name uh, on the record. But um, and in any event, I think we talked to Ellen last week about that topic. But today, I want to talk to her, and why I wanted to have her back uh, was to talk about another. Um, another post that she made on her website, uh, Making the World Safe for Banksters, Syria and the Crosshairs. It's a very, very important topic right now, very timely topic. So welcome, Ellen. Really good to have you back. Oh, thank you, Jay. You know, um, our president is telling us that we have to punish Syria for, um, you know, for, for leashing uh, gas that killed his own citizens, and and so the politicians are appealing to us to, you know, we have to punish this man. How can we, the United States, the, being the great moral leader of the world, let something like that go unpunished? I mean, we took care of Hitler, we took care of Saddam. Now this is the next the next monster that we need to take care of. Uh, what's wrong with that argument? Uh, well, first of all, they, there are a lot of holes in the the. Evidence. I mean, they haven't really proved who did it, right. and um, yeah, and what caused it. And right now, of course, there's. Um, I'm not sure that uh, John Kerry meant for this to happen, but it, um, Putin asked him. So, uh, what what would it take to, to call off the dogs? And and mm-hmm. uh, John Kerry said, Well, if they if they made all their uh, chemical weapons available for international control and so forth. Mm-hmm. And Putin said, All right, I'm going to propose that, and that. And that um, Assad's man—I don't remember who it was—took uh, him up on it right away. So it might yeah. be over. But what's interesting is that Obama doesn't seem to be letting up, and he's speaking tonight, which is the eve of September 11th. So tomorrow—I mean, it just all looks so planned. Fish. Like yeah. they're pushing for this September 11th event. Um, but what I wrote about was that. Uh, um, Syria, along with Iraq, Iran, um, Libya, and three other countries, were seven named countries by, um, by um, uh, Wesley Clark in 2001 or something, or two. Mm-hmm. No, I've forgotten the date, but in 2004, maybe it was, it was on Democracy Now!, and he said that he had been told right after 2001 that we were going to invade all those countries, and it wasn't clear why. But if you look, they're all... Um, not members of the World Trade Organization. They're not members of the Bank for International Settlements, and so they're not members of the financial. They're not controlled by the Financial Stability Board, so they are outside of the international banking system. And it it, it just looks like the whole goal here is to get everybody under this umbrella, so we're all uh, con- uh, controlled by. Central control. In, uh, so it's in, sort of a, a, a central international banking monopoly. Would you say is, yeah. is what they're looking and, to do? And so the rogue states, the one they name, the ones they named as the rogue states, are the ones that are outside of that regulation. And the reason they want everybody in it, this is what I was writing about, was in night, late 1990, 1997, I guess. Tim Geithner and um, Larry Summers. Um, well, they they planned and did met with the major Wall Street bank leaders, CEOs, and um, planned to get rid of Glass-Steagall in order to, I originally called that article, Make the World Safe for Derivatives, 
um, but they realized that in order to really pull it off, they would have to have all countries agree not to regulate, not to separate investment banking from depository banking and to let the Wall Street banks in and to let them sell their derivatives, which like we saw with Greece, for example. Uh, Why would that be, Ellen? Why would it be necessary to to have all countries get rid of their so-called Glass-Steagall type acts? Because otherwise the investors would see that these other countries were safer and they would stronger. pull their money mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it reminds me a little bit of the reason that the IMF forbids member company, countries from ever having a gold-backed standard. Uh, because if one did it, then it would it would lead other it would lead investors to realizing that that was a more stable currency. But, but in any event, uh, I, 1997 is an important date, I think, because uh, you you mentioned uh, that that's when Geithner and 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 that group of of criminals, essentially, in my view, decided they wanted to uh, to get rid of Glass Steagall. But you, mo- I think, uh, the World Trade Organization in 1997. And in your article, you mentioned that up until that date. Uh, it, it really was involved mostly in trading goods for goods, but then it started getting involved, and in, I guess that's why, because they wanted to try to eliminate, uh, they, they wanted to influence other countries' financial uh, regulations. So is that why the World Trade Organization in 1997 uh, started to get involved in financial matters, whereas before it was just in trades of goods, trading of goods? Well, that was, um, it, it was Greg Pallas too. Who wrote about that recently? About the mm-hmm. found this memo, or a memo had been handed over to him. He didn't say how he got it um, between Geithner and Summers and the banks, or Geithner and Summers actually. Um, mm-hmm. And but that was the how Palace put it was that there's this sort of obscure set, uh, part of the World Trade Organization called the financial um, uh, financial. Services agreement, something like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, so they drafted that in there, in in that, and made all these countries agree to it, and they virtually all did. The only one who didn't was Brazil, and then they boycotted Brazil, but Brazil still came out the better for it. But well, there how were did, other how, countries that didn't join yeah. WTO at all? Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned I think there's 156 countries that uh, 155 of them, Brazil being the only one that didn't opt uh, to go along with it. Well. Why would, I mean, what would countries, so countries would lose their individual sovereignty to regulate their own financial markets, right? That's what, that's what we're talking right. about here. Mm-hmm. Then why would 155 countries agree to do that? Well, they're all trapped in this um, trade thing. If, if the, well, take for example Brazil, which was boycotted. I mean, if they're, if they're trying to sell their products, they all think they need foreign foreign trade that i mean they mm-hmm. certainly there are some products they don't produce they need to buy them from elsewhere and so if they're kept out of that market then their economies can't thrive i suppose that's the oh so so what it means is they couldn't trade internationally they'd be prohibited from trading with other members of the world, world trade organization yeah. mm-hmm. That's how they. That's how they were able to get 155 of 156 countries to sign on to give up their own sovereignty, their own ability to regulate their own markets, because there was it was that. Prob- it, mm-hmm. it probably wasn't obvious what they were signing on to either. I mean, financial products. It sounds fairly mm-hmm. harmless. Yeah. Yeah. 
It, it sounds, uh, yeah, you would think so, and unless you were really aware of what was going on. And Timothy Geithner was given a prominent role, was he not, then, and, uh, as the financial services agreement uh, to head that up? Right. He he was made um, ambassador to the World Trade Organization, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think that's what you wrote in your article. Yeah. Um, all right. So so now all of a sudden. So, but I think you mentioned that though there were quite a few. Uh, well, no, most everybody signed on to this. Okay. So how what does this have to do? You know. By the way, I wanted to read an article that uh, a, a quote that you that you put at the front of your article and ask you about that. Uh, this was from uh, uh, Professor uh, Carol Quigley. Uh, and you quoted him as saying, this is from his book called Tragedy and Hope, of which I have a copy here in my library. Uh, the powers of financial capitalism had another far-reaching aim, nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole, end of quote. So this, is, this, goes, this, is, this was written in 1966. Uh, right. Professor Quigley could he had some vision, didn't he? He could see this coming. Yeah, well, and it wasn't a vision. He he said that he was their librarian, that they had delivered all this. He was an insider. He mm-hmm. he was a professor at um, Georgetown, but they had delivered all this information to him. And the only he agreed with it. He thought it was all a good idea. It would, you know, he liked the whole idea of um that you needed credit and this was a system that maintained the credit for the world, but um, the only thing he disagreed with was that uh, they thought it should be kept secret, and he thought it was perfectly fine, and everybody should know about it. So he mm. published that big book, and it was immediately, you couldn't find it. It was taken off the market. I think he passed away, and uh, I actually know the man that, that found it and revived it and reprinted it. Interesting. Yeah, I have a copy of it, and I, I think you can buy it now on the market. It's, it's out there now. Probably yeah. the horses are out of the barn, and they're not worried. Now, when you say they gave him this information. It, you know, always the question <laughs> is, who are they? He called them the international bankers, and that's all he said. So, The international knows. bankers. The international like, bankers. Yeah, the international bankers. So it big. doesn't take too much imagination to figure out who those folks are, or at least the families of those, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, well, and to uh, me, what it shows, people, if, if in fact that, that there is, that they're they're working in collaboration. They actually are a cartel working for mm-hmm. their interest against ours. It just shows that we have to be organized against them. I mean, we're we're not just dealing with one bad banker, you know, with individuals who maybe have a criminal mind or whatever. We're dealing with a whole system that has to be that that is more powerful than we are. And if we want to get the power, we have to first of all we have to have our own banking system. It seems to me banking system that's designed to serve the people rather than to exploit the people. And right, and you and, and we need Ellen, to get organized. And Ellen, you've written a book uh, that, what is the title of the book that addresses that issue in a positive way? Uh, the Public Bank Solution. The Public Bank Solution, and I have to read that book. I haven't yet done so. Uh, okay, but now let's get back into this issue of Syria. How does this all come into play with Syria, uh, is it that Syria is one of those rogue countries that doesn't want to go along with our banking system? Is that what this is all about? Is that why all of a sudden nerve gas becomes a very important issue? Well, you read several. Di- I mean, there are a number of different interpretations. Apparently, there's a um, there was going to be a, um, a 
oil pipeline that would allow mm-hmm. Re- Russia to get oil directly. I mean, there are di- different reasons Natural gas. might have targeted. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> different reasons think- why tar- Syria might have been targeted. But, yeah. Um, I'm just focusing on this this one that there, mm-hmm. there were the seven rogue states, and we've gotten four out of the seven are this is the well the, the other three I think are pretty well crippled. It was um, Lebanon. Let's see another L. I forget. Anyway, um, the rogue states were there was Sudan, Lebanon, Le- Libya, Somalia, Syria, Iran, Sudan, Somalia, Iran, Somalia, and Sudan. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but all of them have a totally different banking model. It's not just that they refuse to join these groups, but they they do not their their money actually is created by um, the government and is issued through a central bank which they own and control. I mean, it's not an independent central bank as ours are called, which in our case is literally private. And in other countries, even though it may be technically owned by the government, the government has no control over it. Um, and they use that money power. They've got the power to create the money, to create the credit, and they use it for, they all have, or at least the four that I looked at, all have, um, they provide health care and um, education through college. And like Libya provided $50,000 to new couples when they got married. Mm. Uh, I mean, where did they, and they did amazing things. Like in Libya, they uh, convert took this huge aquifer and um, brought water down to the to the desert part of the country and just turned the country green. I mean, they did some remarkable things. And where did mm-hmm. they get the funding? They had their own banking system. They didn't have mm-hmm. to borrow. They didn't have to spend 40, 35 to 40% of all public projects um, in the form of interest to someone else. Shame on them. Shame yeah, on those so dictators those for taking. They, for, for, they can't yeah. allow to stand. Yeah. Yeah. Shame on them for taking care of their own people and not bleeding mm-hmm. them. I mean, yeah. and then so what do they get for that? They get droned, bombed. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's just unconscionable. Ellen, I just it's just uh, it. You know, it just makes your blood boil when you hear these things. And 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 why is the United this great moral leader, America, that's doing this stuff? I just it's just. Um, very difficult to to try to figure this out. Um, mm-hmm. You talked well, about some. There are a lot of lobbyists that are leaning on, leaning yeah. on the president, leaning on Congress. A lot of money to be made, and that's the system we're in. And and I guess to try to change it would be very difficult. Um, it is uh, so. The people need to be heard, but the only thing we have now is the internet, because the mainstream media is com- is completely bought and paid for by the by the by the by the ruling elite, by the by the mainstream, by definition. You know, as I was I just had to ask you, I have to ask you this about um, you know, the government's controlling the money supply rather than a private corporation, as Professor Quigley thought would be a great idea to have one monopoly global bank that would control the credit for the entire world. Well I guess if you're in the position of being that monopolist, you're in a great position to to, to get rich at the expense of everyone else. It's a parasitic kind of a- activity. But wasn't, wasn't that something that wasn't President Kennedy proposing and didn't he issue an executive order to do something similar to that? Are you familiar um, with that? I've heard that. Yeah, I, that executive order is kind of vague. It's, <coughs> excuse me, it's not clear what it really meant. He delegated mm-hmm. to the treasurer, <coughs> excuse me, the power to, um, 
to issue U.S. notes, mm-hmm. uh, but but that power had been there ever since since Lincoln instated those U.S. notes. So mm-hmm. they were they were always keeping a certain amount of U.S. notes in circulation, and so you could reprint them to to replace the old ones and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's not clear what he meant by that. But uh-huh. yeah, he, he, there was definitely a war between him and the Federal Reserve. I read a book on that that was quite good. Is that so right? You can't no. tell who who it was that went for him because there were so many. He took on so many big, like the mafia itself. And so did so President Kennedy? Uh, who got him? Pre- did President Kennedy actually think he was the president? I think that's the problem. <laughs> that was his problem. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's a very interesting, uh, very interesting idea. Uh, you know, uh, you mentioned also that Basel III rules are geared towards further eliminating of of, of public banking. So you, we have public banks here in the states, don't we? You're you're involved with one in, in North Dakota, I believe it is, right? Yeah, we or have at least one. We have one uh-huh. public bank. That's it. But one the, public bank in the United States. Yeah, but in places like Germany, the the whole local commercial banking system is public, uh, cooperative, and community banks. I mean, they're just these small banks that are having their mandate to serve their community. They can't. They don't do derivatives. And then there are some big private international banks, like Deutsche Bank is the biggest in Germany, and they're they've always had it in for these little banks because little banks have the market. Mm-hmm. And so Basel III would increase the capital requirements. It would eliminate the um, public banks, government-owned banks, uh, use the fact that they're guaranteed by the government to say, we don't need capital because we are the government. In other words, mm-hmm. we've got all the capital that the government has, but they're, they're not allowing to, them to use that. So they actually have to be capitalized like everybody else, which means they have to come up with a lot of money, which they don't have. Mm-hmm. So the, it it does look like the whole goal here, or the goal of that part of Basel III, is to force the little banks to sell out to the big, big banks, which do have the capital and who are running the show. Well, it's a uh, it's a monopolistic uh, movement, it seems. And Quigley, Professor Quigley, had it exactly right. That's the trend. That's what they have in mind. And once they get control of the minds and hearts of people and manipulate them into believing certain things. I mean, it's like the big bailout of 2008 was supposed to be good for all of the people. Ellen, my engineer is telling me we're out of time. It always just goes too fast. There's so much good uh, that you have going. Again, the website is webofdebt.wordpress.com, webofdebt.wordpress.com. Lots of great articles. You write one almost one a week, I think, Ellen. So folks, go there. Please do yourself a favor and learn what Ellen has to tell you because it's, it's for your own good. Believe me, it is. Uh, Folks, that's all the time we've got. Uh, Don't go away, though, because I'm going to be right back uh, in just a minute with Florian Siegfried, uh, who will tell us where he's putting his client's money now and, um, well, which gold stocks he's buying primarily. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Florian Siegfried. In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains. Precious Metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper property. 
a large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. Some things never go out of style. In the gold business for over 100 years, high-grade Canadian gold discoveries have been in vogue amongst investors. Balmoral Resources has continued to deliver high-grade results from a series of new discoveries in Quebec. If you're looking to upgrade your portfolio in the fall with some golden highlights, learn more about Balmoral at balmoralresources.com. Balmoral trades on the OTCQX under the symbol BALMF and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol BAR. BAR. 